Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We're going to be going over 1 Corinthians expositorily. So what that means is that uh, we're going to be doing it verse by verse and really getting down into the text. What we want to provide is almost like a, a, uh, a, a study group for the books that we're going through. And so giving you some information about the times, the place, the geography of the places that we'll be talking about. And this isn't just over 1 Corinthians. This will be going over every book that we go through. We'll go into that kind of depth. So if you're looking for, uh, you know, a, a little bit more in-depth study, this is what we're looking to do. So um, today, and we'll do this for every, every book that we go over, we'll do a bit of an overview of that book to give you some context, to give you some idea on what was happening, where it was happening, why Paul wrote this book, and everything like that. So, um, like I said, 1 Corinthians, uh, you can probably confuse this with 1 Californians because there's some crazy stuff that happens in both places. Pretty similar, in fact. Um, but if you know anything about California, you'll know that it's a bit of a melting pot. Uh, it's got a lot of different people and ideas and cultures. And, uh, and because of those cultures and ideas, it's not exactly known to be a place of moral value or moral standard. And really, Corinth wasn't very different in those times as far as moral standards go. So like I said, just an overview of 1 Corinthians, and uh, this will give us some context whenever we are going verse by verse. Uh, and first, we're going to start off with uh, some geography. So it might be a little in-depth, but it'll give you a lot of ideas on where, this is, where Corinth was located and what, uh, what was happening there. So if you're familiar with where Italy is, uh, if you look just southwest, I'm sorry, yeah, southeast of the boot, that's where Greece is. And Corinth is located in Greece, um, just to the southeast of the boot. Uh, now, Greece was kind of separated into two different parts. The, the first part was the mainland of Greece, uh, or, or northern. Uh, the cities that are there are Athens and Delphi, which you'll re you can read about in Scripture as well. And then you have the Peloponnesus, which is southern Greece. Um, some cities that are there uh, is Sparta and Olympia, and that area, that region, that district, is, is, is what's called Achaia. Um, Achaia, sorry, uh, in Scripture. And then right smack dab in the middle is the Isthmus of Corinth. So like we talked about, um, you, you're going to hear some geography terms. Isthmus, you might remember that from school when you were there. It's basically a, a land bridge. So it's a smaller land mass that connects two larger land masses. And conveniently, right in the middle is the, uh, of the Isthmus of Corinth is the city of Corinth. And so whether you were traveling from Athens to Sparta or Sparta to Delphi to Delphi to uh, Olympia or Olympia to Athens, lo and behold, you're going right through Corinth. Um, and it wasn't only the trade, the trade routes on land that brought travelers to Corinth, but by sea on both sides of the infamous. And you have on the northwest side is the Gulf of Corinth. And then on the southeast side was the Saronic Gulf. And this meant that having uh, ports on both sides would kind of make Corinth the trade capital of Greece. It brought people in like crazy. And it was kind of like the, uh, from every direction. But it doesn't even stop there. So here's where it kind of gets interesting. If you were traveling to, from Athens to, say, Italy, um, or from Olympia to Cyprus, which is further east, you would have to travel about 350 miles down south of that Peloponnesus. 
Uh, and not only was it a long and exhaustive trip traveling south, but they, it was said that the trade winds and the, the waves made that, that, made that trip, those waters, the deadliest seas in all of the, um, the Mediterranean. So needless to say, this was a uh, very deadly trip, and it really kept trades from expanding. So Corinth, like any great capitalist, uh, found a way to fix this problem and even profit from it. So the isthmus of Corinth at its thinnest point is 3.5 miles across. And for years, they actually tried to build a canal there. And we're, we're talking about like 60 AD, so years and years and years ago, thousands of years ago. Um, and, but that, that uh, canal wasn't built until 18. 93. So many, many, many years later, they finally built the canal. But instead of, since they couldn't build the canal, what they did was they, um, they built a road instead, a road that spanned that entire three and a half miles. And what they did was they used logs that laid inside of stone channels to transport ships across the land um, from one gulf to the other. And in doing so in about a half day, believe it or not, and this might not sound impressive to our standards today, but it was revolutionary in those ancient times. Uh, it changed the, the Mediterranean as a whole and is actually considered the very first railroad system, believe it or not. So uh, not only did it provide a much safer and quicker travel within Greece, but it also provided a safer and quicker travel for all of these other areas for the entire region. And Corinth uh, prospered from it. It quickly became that melting pot of people, cultures, and ideas that I had mentioned earlier. And being the mecca of trade that it was, um, it became a host to all sorts of unsettled travelers uh, from, the, from other regions. So what used to be considered, you know, a homely area, now it's just people who are, who are wandering and traveling all over the place. Um, now, present-day Corinth is right on the coast, right there, but the ancient city of Corinth was just a few miles southwest, located at a higher elevation and right at the foot of a plateau. Now, on that plateau was an acropolis, which just means higher city, and it was part of Corinth, but they called it the Acrocorinth. And the Acrocorinth, because it was 2,000 feet above uh, the city of Corinth, it was kind of um, a, a defensive area and a safe haven, if you will, for if there was an attack on the city of Corinth. There were walls built all the way around the top of the plateau, and there's even a natural spring inside at the top of that plateau that could give fresh water to the entire city of Corinth if needed. Now, there were also six pagan temples uh, on top of this plateau that were devoted to pagan gods and their worship. And the most prevalent of these pagan temples um, was the Temple of Aphrodite. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of her before. Uh, in this temple... There lived about a thousand what they called themselves priestesses, but they were actually prostitutes. Um, and they lived in that temple, and every night they would descend down into the town and offer their services to the citizens and the travelers. Didn't matter what gender they were, um, that's what they were there to do, to offer, give offerings back to the temple of Aphrodite. Now, this was an accepted practice by, uh, by most Gentiles at the time. Um, but there were some things that was happening in Corinth that even by pagan standards were, were considered disgusting and, and sick. Uh, in fact, Corinth became so corrupt and immoral that the term to Corinthianize was a term used uh, all throughout the, the region, not just in Greece, in Greece, but it, it was synonymous for immoral uh, immorality and total debauchery. So you were 
living as a Corinth, if you were a drunkard or if you, you, know, you were with prostitutes, that was kind of the, the, the term. And that's how depraved Corinth was. So to, to the outside standards, these things were sick and disgusting, but in Corinth, it was everyday life. The city had just about everything you could need or could ever possibly want except for a church. Uh, and that's where Paul came in. So there's no doubt that Paul was deliberate when choosing the cities in which to build the church. And this is just my own speculation, but I assume that Paul was very familiar with the trade routes that were happening around the area. And so um, Paul, possibly instead of seeing trade routes, he saw routes that could spread the gospel of Jesus. Routes that, if done correctly, would take uh, the, the word all across the region and eventually um, into the world. Using trade routes that were filled with complete depravity to make disciples of all nations. And, uh, and because we know that, that Paul is a smart guy, there's no way he didn't know this. And this, was, this seems like a clear reason why Corinth was a great place to start a church. Um, so I know that this is a study of 1 Corinthians, but in order to get some context behind the book itself, we're going to talk about his time in Corinth, which is not 1 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians when he was in, uh, uh, golly, um, Ephesus. And, uh, and so when he was in Corinth, we can find that in Acts chapter 18. So go ahead and turn to cha Acts chapter 18. And in Acts chapter 18, Paul had already been taken to the Areopagus, which is a court in Athens. He wasn't being formally tried, but he was being asked to defend his teachings, uh, mainly the teaching about the resurrection. And so while he was there at the Oropagus, he started to explain the gospel. And most people were scoffing and thought that it was just ridiculous. But there were a few people, including a member of the Oropagus court, who, whenever Paul left, decided to follow him to, to hear more about Jesus. And there were a few that did. So let's start in verse 1. After these things... He left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Isn't that cute? Aquila and Priscilla. They, 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 they rhyme. Uh, anyway, uh, so he came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius was, uh, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome he came to them. So this is the, one of the ways that we know when Paul went to Corinth because scholars know that uh, Jews were forced out of Rome at, in 49 AD. So that kind of gives us a, a timestamp on when he went to Corinth. And you'll see that throughout this part of the scripture, through Acts chapter 18, they give us a little bit more timestamp. So we have an idea that this book was written probably about eight years after he was in Corinth. So uh, verse, verse 3, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. He stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, and uh, the translation is either tent makers or leather workers. Uh, and verse 4, we'll continue. He was reasoning in, and as he was reasoning in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, which is right above, the, uh, of, above Greece, it was kind of northern Greece, uh, he began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean for I will go to the Gentiles. <laughs> when he left there and went to the house of a, uh, then he left there and went to a house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and uh, with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, uh, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night, by a, uh, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in the city. So God has a reason for him to be there. And, and we hear that right there for I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So he was in Corinth for a year and six months. Um, but while Gallio was pro, uh, proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. They didn't like what he was teaching and brought him, to, brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, I would be, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Okay, now there's, here's another name that we haven't heard yet, uh, but we will. This is verse 17. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they became, became, began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Um, so then it says that Paul was in Corinth for many more days. It's not really specific. Um, but then he set off for Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, now, for Paul to have taken Priscilla and Aquila, who were very well knowledgeable whenever it came to, to the word, we're not talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about the gospel. It was kind of just being spread by words right now because they didn't have the, the New Testament. But for him to take them with him meant that he had some, some leadership in the church of Corinth that he trusted, that, um, that was adequate or should have been adequate. And we, we heard of Crispus, and we heard of Sosthenes, uh, and they were mentioned earlier in this text, and they were two of those leaders. Um, and while Paul was in Corinth, um, another leader is mentioned, and we'll hear him talked about in 1 Corinthians. His name was Apollos. Um, and let's look at chapter 18, verse 24 through 28. Same chapter, 24 through 28. And now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning the Jews, being equated only with the baptism of John. Now the baptism of John would be John the Baptist, so it's, it's safe to assume that he was a student of John the Baptist, which means he didn't follow Jesus, but he was spreading the gospel of uh, repent for the time of the kingdom is on hand. Uh, so what, hap what it says next is that he, he was not familiar with the baptism of the Holy Spirit instead of water. So verse 26 says, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, this is awesome because, um, you know, this is, a, this is he's talking about this man is bold and he is well versed and he knows what he's talking about. But notice that Priscilla and Aquila didn't take him and say, hey, you know, this is how you need to be more attractive. You need to be nicer. You need to, you know, play better music. You need to have lights and, and all this awesome stuff to attract people. They didn't tell him that. They told him, they, they corrected him on the Holy Spirit. And he took it and received it. And that's what the word of, of God does. That's what the gospel does is it pierces hearts. You don't have to add any fanciness to it. 
it does what it's meant to do just by being Holy Scripture. And while I was studying for this, I, I read a post from someone who said something very interesting. And I shared it with a couple of you already. But he said, it would seem as though God is the worst teacher because everyone feels like they have to add to what his word says. Everybody has to help him out, which is pretty pathetic when you think about it. When you think of it that way, God gave us everything that we need right in our Bibles, right as the word of God, and to have to add to it to make people understand the gospel does not, is not biblical and doesn't make sense. So as soon as they spoke with him, it says, and he wanted to go across to Achaia. So he received this new knowledge of the gospel and he was ready to go. He was ready to go. Now remember, Achaia is the southern part of Greece. And if you have the maps in the back of your Bible, you'll be able to see this. Um, and that's where Corinth is located. He was ready to go. Finishing in verse 27, it says, The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Um, now, this gives us a little bit more understanding of Apollos and kind of helps us see why Paul was supportive of him going to Corinth. Um, this guy is an amazing teacher. And it's actually said that it's possible that Hebrews was actually written by Apollo. Some people believe that. It's written in a way that is very wordy, very um, uh, articulate and thoughtful. And so uh, if not him writing it through, uh, you know, th through the word of God, but uh, all, or maybe just Paul, him dictating it for Paul, because at one point Paul became uh, his sight. He started losing his sight and he needed people to write and do things for him. And so that's a thought about Hebrews. Um, so Paul, uh, Apollos was a very good teacher and we'll hear about him in this first Corinthians part. So remember, this is just an overview. Um, but now that we have some context of Corinth itself and the people of Corinth, we know what kind of people they are. Let's get into the letter. Uh, so Paul left Corinth to start other churches in the region. And while he was in Ephesus, he got in word that there were some serious problems going on in the church of Corinth. And don't get me wrong, we can certainly uh, relate to that these days because every church does have its problems. But the church of Corinth was dealing with some very fleshy, fleshly worldly issues that were seeping into the church. And, uh, and I think we can relate to that too. And Paul needed to address these issues. Uh, while some of the issues were sort of gray, uh, others were much more uh, serious offenses. And so in this letter to Corinth, he addresses five major con uh, issues that were cause for concern. And he backs everything, out, everything that he says with the gospel. And so as we're going through these scriptures today, these, the, the, the five points, the five issues that he notes I'll also note what he was bringing into it as far as the gospel goes. Now, the first concern that uh, Paul addresses is the issue of division taking place in the church. And then, again, he, basically, he brilliantly backs himself up with the gospel, um, just as he does every time. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 11 through 13. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that, are there, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you saying, I am of Paul and I of Apollos, I of, of Cephas, which is the apostle Peter, and I of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul has not, has not crucified for you. For were you baptized in the name of Paul? So 
we see this in churches all the time where you have these little groups or cliques within the church. Um, and the first one that he addresses is his own little fan club. The, the people who are saying, you know, Paul is my favorite. Um, his story is super inspiring. Did you know that he was actually a Pharisee that condemned Christians? And, and now he's the founder of churches all over the place. Um, he even started our church. You know, I'm, I'm Team Paul. And then there's Team Apollos. And as we learned in Scripture earlier, Apollos was a great teacher with a lot of wisdom, uh, and he spoke very eloquently, uh, and people identified with that. And, and I think that whenever you, when you think of each of these teachers separately, you'll see the kind of characteristics that people are drawn to. And so we'll talk about that. Uh, but Apollos... Team Apollos, you know, they would say that, you know, he's very intelligent. He's the most intelligent out of all of our teachers. Uh, he's thoughtful and, and speaks very well. Uh, so I identify most with Apollos. Uh, and then you have Team Peter, uh, who, uh, you know, people might say, I don't really get all the fancy talk from Apollos, and Paul is great and all, but, you know, uh, Peter actually is one of the original 12, and he walked with Jesus for three years. Um, he's kind of the blue-collar guy. He works with his hands. He's a fisherman. Uh, so I think that he gets me best. And then Paul, we don't know if it was kind of being facetious whenever he brought up Team Jesus. You know, I'm of Jesus. Because it seems as though it's pretty clear that every single one of these teachers was Team Jesus. But it could also be the non-denominational crowd, the crowd that says, you know, we don't really see the point of having earthly leaders. Um, we just want to follow Jesus, which is great, uh, really, until they start telling you that you don't need theology or you don't need doctrine. You don't need those kind of teachers. You just need a relationship with Jesus. Um, but how would we know what a relationship with Jesus looks like if we don't have theology and doctrine? So more than likely, Paul was being just a little facetious, as I, as I said before, because most these, all three of these men were all about Jesus, and they would never be okay with someone telling them, I'm of, I'm of Paul, not of Jesus. That, that, that's just ridiculous. But Paul brings it back to the gospel by saying there is no team Paul, there is no team Apollos, there is no team Peter, there is only team Jesus. Paul didn't die for your salvations. Apollos wasn't pierced for your, your transgressions. And you weren't baptized in the name of Peter. Um, and this is something that we deal with, not just with leaders, but pretty much everything else that the enemy wants to use to pull us apart, um, to pull us away from Jesus being the center of everything we do uh, and everything that we are and everything that we are called to be. So... Next, Paul touches on something a little bit more difficult to swallow, uh, and it is sin. But it has an emphasis on sexual sin, sexual immorality. Um, so let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. This is, uh, remember, just an overview. We will go through all of these scriptures. There's a lot in there, um, but just touching on the five main issues. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Verse 1, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist, exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that you have so, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as, I, as though I were present. So to have, back in these times, as it would be today, to have a sexual relationship with your stepmother, it carried the same disgust um, and the same kind of stigma as if it were your biological mother. Incest was punishable by death, even in Roman law, yet here we see it happening and, and being tolerated within the church at Corinth. Now, that word tolerated uh, is something that we'll touch on again. 
So let's read on uh, verse four. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this term deliver is an authoritative word used for judicial sentencing. Paul is casting this man out of the church, out of their worship, away from their fellowship, and into Satan's world of destruction. And as much as the modern day church would have you believe that we should never cast someone out, a member of the church or whoever, here's Paul doing just that. He's saying that it's more likely, let's read that that last verse that I read, verse five. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That last part, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What he's saying is that he is more likely to find redemption and salvation once he hits rock bottom in Satan's world than it is for him, for him and his sins to be tolerated and accepted by the church. Will he find salvation if all of us say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, Jesus died for your sins, it's okay. No, he's going to continue doing the exact same thing as he had done before. So casting him out, making him lose everything, everyone that was close to him in the church is what Paul is what Paul is saying. And there's believe it or not there's love in what he's saying. There is love there. I'm not casting him out cuz I hate him. I'm casting him out cuz it's more likely for him to find salvation and redemption at the rock bottom of the ocean than it would be for him to be up here with us. Now let's look at chapter 5, verse 9 through 13, just a little bit further. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So this is not the first time Paul has written. Now this is the first in, uh, holy, godly inspired epistle that we have. But there's, there's letters that are written all the time. It's as common as a text message would be today. So he's wrote about this issue before. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world for, or, or with the covetous and the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. So he's saying you, you, you still need to be in the world to save those people. But... This is verse 11. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brothers, for he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even eat with such a, a one. So now we have people, nowadays we have people who are saying, who are embracing all of this sin in the world that is seeping into the church Um, But Paul is saying, don't even eat with these people. They're dangerous. Verse 12, "For for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. God is meant to judge the outsiders, the unbelievers, the people who have chose to turn away. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And there's not many teacher, or churches that, that preach these verses very often. But it's, it's instructions directly to the church, directly to the church. So here we see that Paul has addressed this issue before. Maybe not this exact same issue, but certainly others like it. And again, Paul tells us that we are to judge those within the church and remove them if necessary, if they do not turn from their wickedness. See, these things are never taught in churches anymore, uh, which is maybe just one of the reasons why churches are failing all across the world. And when I say failing, I don't mean that they're failing uh, financially, because most of them are not. Most of them 
uh, are very prosperous. But what I mean by failing is the biblical standard of what a church is. Um, so the first sin in this portion that is addressed by Paul is incest. Now let's look at chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or effeminate, in some translations say sodomites, um, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So if you want a glimpse of what Corinth was like, there's your list right there. And remember the so-called priestesses that would come down from the Acro Corinth. There were people in the church of Corinth that were participating in those activities. All while being accepted um, by others in the church. And uh, they even had a slogan back then, a kind of a motto of sorts that said, all things are lawful for me through Christ. Uh, that, is, that is the opposite of the gospel. <laughs> that does not mean that you have a free card, a get-out-of-jail card to do whatever you want, but they were living that way. And I know that I made a joke about uh, California earlier, but honestly, this list isn't much different than what we see in our own backyard, let alone California. And it's clear that the church of Corinth was headed for trouble if they didn't change course. And every church that allows this kind of destructive behavior is on that same path. But again, Paul brings it back home with the gospel in chapter 6, verse 15 through 20. 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall uh, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself with a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is, is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, for every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19, Or do you not know that, the, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's, that's, you have been bought with a price. That's the gospel. And Paul brings it back every time. So it's pretty black and white. And although um, we've looked at some issues that are pretty clearly spelled out throughout all of Scripture, we're going to look at some things that aren't so black and white, maybe a little bit gray. Uh, or, or more accurately, um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, this next issue that Paul addresses is food. Uh, and more specifically, food from animals that was sacrificed to pagan God and gods and deities. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known, he has ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, that there is no God but one God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things... Uh, and we exist for Him, 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things and by whom all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idols until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience uh, being weak is defiled. So in Roman times, and I'll, I'll pick up here in just a second, in uh, Greek or Greece and, and Ro- uh, Rome, they were, they were polyethe- polytheistic, which means that they believed in multiple gods. gods. Uh, they were also polydemonic, which means that they believed in mul- multiple demons. Um, and they believed that the only way you could get rid of an evil spirit is to eat an animal that was sacrificed to one of their, uh, one of their idols. And so you can kind of see how that would become confusing if you're with a group of people who maybe there's new believers or maybe there's unbelievers that you're trying to convert and they see you eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol, then they, they might say something along the lines of, hey, this person is a Christian, they worship Jesus, and they worship other idols too. And so it would co- cause some confusion. So let's pick up where Paul says uh, on, on verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. For take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who, have, who has knowledge dining with idle temples, dining, dining in an idle temple, uh, will not this his conscience, for if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. They'll think that it's okay and that it is more of a, uh, of a pagan type of, of, of dinner. For though your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother, for the brother whose, though, whose sake, it, sorry, the brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience with, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So Paul is saying is that there are no other gods. We know that. So there's nothing magic about this food, this meat that has been sacrificed. There's nothing wicked about it because those gods don't exist. Um, So he's saying that if, if you are with people who might stumble, do not eat from it. But if you're by yourself, or you're with other believers who understand it and you're hungry, by all means, eat. We can kind of see a parallel drawn with our culture and, and alcohol. Um, and, and Michael has brought this up before where, you know, you never know what person among you might be struggling with such things. Maybe they've been sober for a few months uh, or, or a few years and they see a, a pastor or, or a leader in the church having a, a glass of alcohol, then he might think, oh, well, if he can do it, I can too. No, you can't. Not if, you, not if that is your master. Not if you've allowed that to be your master. So um, it's not a matter of what our heart tells us. It's a matter of our image as a Christian. We are image bearers of Christ to new Christians or unbelievers. So again, Paul brings it back to the gospel in chapter 10 verse 31 through 33. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. So it's not a matter of whether I look good or not. It's going to boast my ego or make me, you know, elevated. It's so that person can become, can be saved. That is everything that we do. So what this does is we're almost putting on the glasses of the gospel. So that's, we need to see everything the way we drive. And I'm 
I'm guilty of that myself. Um, the way we speak, the way we love, the way we talk to our, to our family or our neighbors. We have to see all of these things in this lens of the, through the gospel. Now, the next one is probably the most controversial issue that, uh, that Paul talks about in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And it addresses the gatherings of the church. And there's a lot to unpack here. So we're just going to touch base on some of these things today and get deeper into it whenever we are preaching verse by verse. But the gatherings in the church of Corinth were a little crazy. Um, there were people interrupting the message. Uh, women didn't know if they should or should not wear head coverings. People speaking in tongues without interpretation right in the middle of, of a message given. Um, there were people claiming to speak on behalf of God, but were really not speaking on behalf of God. Uh, and it was just a mess. And so Paul needed to address these issues. He wrote uh, that all of these things must be done properly and orderly and in unity as we are in unity of Christ, bringing it back to the gospel. Uh, so some of these issues were speaking in tongues, like I mentioned earlier, uh, some people claimed it was one way and some people claimed it was the other. And he really brings in this, in this, uh, in, in this issue, he brings up people coming into the church and seeing madness. If new believers or unbelievers walk into the church and they see chaos, they will think that we're madmen. And... All of these gifts from the Spirit are not ever meant to divide. We are supposed to be one. This is not a sword that is dividing people and or dividing the church. That should never happen. Um, and so when it's used as such, it hurts the church. And it, it, is, it is destructive. And so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that once we get into verse by verse. But the fifth... And the final problem that Paul addresses uh, is the issue that there were actually some people in the church, people uh, who were just regular uh, people in the congregation, but also some leaders who were believing and teaching that there was no resurrection, that it wasn't actual resurrection. It, it was just too far for them to grasp that God could do that. And so in chapter 15... Verses 13 through 19, he addresses it. He says, uh, starting in, in 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testify against God that He raised Christ if He truly did not raise Christ, did not raise, if in fact the dead were not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're, you're still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only and not to the, to, the, to the next life, we are all of men most to be pitied. So if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then Jesus wasn't who he said he was. And we're still damned to hell because of our sin. And uh, we will never be righteous enough to spend eternity with the Lord. And if Jesus didn't raise again after three days, then we're doomed. And again, as always, he sums it up to, uh, to the gospel and a reconciliation between God and man. This is chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Verses 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren, 
that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. We will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must be must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immorality, which is man, which is flesh. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immorality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And in closing, for this entire book, uh, Paul gives two verses that sum up every issue that we've covered today in this epistle. This is chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. Verse 13, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And verse 14, Let all that you do be done in love. See, the divisions in the church were meant to be mended with love, through love. The wicked are to be cast out of the church, not only because of the love to protect the church, but also the love in hopes that they will find salvation through God's grace, that they will turn from their ways. We are to sustain our own needs, as we talked about with eating and drinking, sustain our own needs and freedoms, as to not mislead new Christians and unbelievers in love. We do it out of love. And the church is to be united, united body of Christ, uh, in love for one another. And God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our iniquities because of love. That may not be the definition of love that the world wants to give you, but... It is the definition of the creator of the universe. Um, He tells us what love is. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you.